everybody. Welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. As I mentioned in the last episode, today we will be talking about dysrhythmias and a little bit about the common features of each one and what you're going to do about it. So note that the what you're going to do about a part is based on general knowledge and is in no way intended to replace your hospital or school or clinical locations, policies, and procedures. So with that said, let's just do a quickie quick review of the main elements of the electrocardiogram, and that is your P wave, your QRS, and your T wave. So the P wave represents your atrial depolarization, which is basically your atria contracting. The QRS represents the ventricular depolarization, so ventricular contraction, that's the QRS. And the T wave is your ventricular repolarization, and that's as the ventricle begins to relax. So again, that's P, QRS, and T. So let's talk a little bit about the dysrhythmias that occur in the atria. And we'll start very simple with premature atrial contractions. These are basically extra little beats that occur within a normal rhythm. So PACs are not a rhythm in and of themselves. What you will have is sinus rhythm with PACs or sinus tachycardia with PACs or even sinus bradycardia with PACs. So the rate can vary wildly from slow to fast. And basically it's just a little interruption in the rhythm. You will see a little bit of irregularity where these PACs occur. Um, when you look at the P waves on these, the wave that corresponds to the atria contracting, it's probably gonna look a little bit different than your other P waves. It, uh, look at, we call it the morphology, how it's shaped. So look at the morphology of the P wave, and it's probably going to look different from all the other beats. That's because it's occurring from a slightly different location in the atria. Note that sometimes, especially if you're looking more at a, at a faster rate rhythm, the P wave for that premature contraction could even be hidden in the T wave. So look for a T wave that looks a little funky and maybe has an extra little bump to it. And that will give you a clue that you're looking at a PAC. Um, your QRS complexes are gonna be the same because again, this occurs, uh, the beat originates in the atria. So there's no issues with it once it gets to the ventricle, it's gonna conduct through just fine. And let's talk a little bit about what causes a PAC. Um, Caffeine is a huge one. Caffeine, anxiety, stress, okay? Also heart failure, uh, pulmonary disease, nicotine, I forgot to mention. When I mentioned caffeine, I kind of usually group nicotine in there as well. You can have PACs with an MI, so they're not always totally benign. You can have them with hypoxia, um, ischemic myocardium. So even though sometimes they're usually something that we just take note of and move on, you do want to keep an eye out, obviously, but um, they can be associated with some things that aren't so great for your patient. But in a nutshell, 
usually not a big deal. You have PACs all the time. I have PACs when I drink way too much coffee. Uh, you're going to make note of them when you do your monitor strips. Make note of how often they're occurring. Keep an eye on them and you're going to move on with your day. So that is the nuts and bolts, the down and dirty on PACs. So how about something a little bit more interesting? How about atrial flutter? So atrial flutter, don't see it that often. I see atrial fibrillation probably, you know, 10 times more than atrial flutter, maybe even more. Um, but what this is, is this is that one that has that sawtooth pattern. Very easy to recognize, very, very distinctive. So typically your atrial rate in atrial flutter is going to be really, really fast. Um, we're talking 250 to 350 beats per minute. Note that not all of these atrial beats conduct on through to the ventricles. So your ventricular rate is going to be usually like one for every three atrials or one for every four. So your ventricular rate can, can be normal while your atrial rate is really fast. But typically what we'll see in atrial flutter, especially when it first occurs, is that both will be a little fast and that's what we call uncontrolled or RVR, rapid ventricular response. And we say it has RVR or is uncontrolled when the rate is above 100. The ventricular rate is above 100. So you're gonna look at the rhythm. It's gonna be fairly consistent. You're gonna have probably four or so atrial flutter waves and then a ventricular beat and then four atrial flutter waves and then a ventricular beat. And it'll be pretty regular. You will not be able to see the P waves. Um, they're called flutter waves in the case of atrial flutter. So don't try to measure a PR interval because it doesn't really work because you don't have a QRS for every flutter wave. Um, your QRS, again, is going to be completely normal because, again, the conduction deficit or conduction dysrhythmia is up top. Once it gets through to the ventricle, all is good. It's going to conduct normally. So what can we say are the common causes with atrial flutter? Heart failure is a big one. Um, ischemia and MI, again, you can also have it with rheumatic heart disease and thyrotoxicosis. Um, things like that can cause some atrial flutter. Uh, pulmonary embolism, you could have uh, valve disease can cause atrial flutter. So a little bit more pathology associated with atrial flutter than say just uh, the one we just talked about, the premature atrial contractions. So what are you gonna do about atrial flutter? Wanna find out right away, is this new for the patient or not? If your patient just got there, you hook them up to the monitor and they're in a flutter, find out if it's new, if you can, and if it is, you have a little bit more options with treatment than if it's chronic. So if it's a new onset, typically less than 48 hours, um, you can typically, typically get someone out of atrial flutter using synchronized cardioversion. And that's where we put the pads on them, sedate them so they're comfortable, and give them a little bzz and kickstart that sinus node into doing what it's supposed to do. 
works a lot of the time, but not all the time. Some people have resistant atrial flutter and they need different treatments. But if your patient's been in a flutter for a while, you're probably not going to synchronize cardiovert them, especially if they have not been getting anticoagulation treatment. So as the heart is in atrial flutter and the atria is beating 250 to 350 times a minute, it's very turbulent in the atria. So clots can form, blood clots can form. And when you kick the heart into a regular rhythm quickly, like in synchronized cardioversion, that clot can be ejected out and huge risk for stroke. So you're not going to cardiovert someone who's been in atrial flutter for an unknown amount of time. But if they're in the hospital and they've been monitored and voila, you look on the monitor, they're in a flutter and you know, maybe you try some medication treatments first and they don't work, you can go to synchronized cardioversion. So what would be some of those medication treatments? If your ventricular rate is really fast, basically the idea is that you want to slow things down. So basically, we're not going to worry so much about the atrial flutter part as we are worried about the ventricular rate part. So beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, um, diltiazem is a common one, are going to be used for that. Also amiodarone I see a lot for controlling that ventricular rate. And amiodarone will often put someone back into sinus rhythm, which is super cool. So um, the down and dirty on atrial flutter, you want to control the ventricular rate, cardiovert if you can, and the patient will need to be anticoagulated if they're going to stay in atrial flutter and that's just going to be their chronic heart rhythm, they need to be anticoagulated. Huge risk for stroke. So the cousin to atrial flutter is atrial fibrillation. This is the one that we see more often of the two, way more often of the two. So with atrial fibrillation, actually pretty easy to recognize. It is, the hallmark of this is irregularly irregular, which is very hard to say. And what that means is your atrial rhythm is all over the place. You'll, maybe when you first glance, you'll think it's PACs, but when you look at it more closely, you'll see that the, the atrial rhythm is just wacky. It's just all over the place. There's no rhyme or reason to it. You will also not be able to see P waves. So those would be the two core things with atrial fibrillation. No discernible P waves. They're just, it just looks kind of bumpy, but you can't pick out a P wave and all that mess. And it will be irregularly irregular. And all those little bumpies are atrial contractions. They are basically kind of like P waves, but we're not going to count them as P waves because they're not corresponding each and every one to a discernible present QRS. So that atrial rate, when you look at those little bumpy bumps, is going to be high, super high, like 300-ish high. Um, so the, the basically the atria are just kind of quivering more or less. They're not really, they're not doing a lot. The ventricular rate, again, just like with a flutter, is what we really want to pay attention to. So if it's controlled, we, we say it's controlled if the rate's below 100. We say it's uncontrolled or, again, RVR, rapid ventricular response, when it's above 100. So the way you would chart that, would you say, you'd say atrial fibrillation with RVR or AFib with RVR.
or AFib uncontrolled. Again, you're not going to see P waves. Uh, the PRI, not measuring it, so one less thing to do, right? The QRS is typically going to be less than 0.12, but note that you can have atrial fibrillation in the presence of a bundle branch block. And this one is actually kind of hard to see and recognize because when you have a wide QRS because of a bundle branch block and it's all irregular, it's going to look like, at first glance, it might look like polymorphic VTAC, and that would be very bad. So you would need to take a close look at something with a wider QRS. So what can cause atrial fibrillation? Well, you know what, let's back up just a touch. I want to kick, uh, hit on something pretty important with atrial fibrillation. Notice that the atrium is just kind of quivering and it's not really doing anything. Remember the concept of atrial kick where the atria contract and they push out, you know, that little bit of extra blood into the ventricle? We're going to lose atrial kick in a fib. So you're going to lose, I want to say it's about 25% of your atrial kick and your cardiac output when in AFib. So if your patient goes into AFib, just right in front of you, keep a close eye on their blood pressure. It is likely to drop a bit um, when they lose that atrial kick. If they've been in it for a while, they've compensated, they're kind of used to it. But definitely keep an eye. If this is new on set for your patient, watch their blood pressure. Okay, so what can cause some atrial fibrillation? How about acute MI? You could have coronary artery disease, some CHF, some cardiomyopathy, hyperthyroidism, um, ischemia. I've even heard of it being brought on by an alcohol binge, um, any kind of heart disease, pulmonary disease can cause AFib. So you will see this quite a fair amount in uh, the hospital clinical setting. So then of course the next question is, what are we going to do about AFib? Again, the name of the game is control the ventricular rate. You will do that with mostly what I see happen is we give an amiodarone, we give that as a, there's like a loading dose, and then a continuous drip for like, I want to say 18 hours maybe. So you start with a, a higher dose for about six hours, and then you drop it down to 0.5 milligrams, and that goes for the next 18 hours. So you can usually, not always, but usually get them to convert back into sinus rhythm with an amiodarone drip, and then you transition them over into PO amiodarone, and that often does the trick. But there's a few other things that you can give or do. Um, beta blockers sometimes, uh, calcium channel blockers again. You can cardiovert them again if it is new onset and you know that they don't have big clots developed yet. And if it's going to be chronic and this is just what they do, and the people live in atrial fibrillation all the time, is they need to be anticoagulated. Very important. Okay, let's go into 
Super, super, goodness gracious, supraventricular tachycardia. I have had my coffee today, I promise. Um, SVT. So this is, you know, you have your sinus tachycardia, which we didn't really talk about. But this is different from sinus tachycardia in that the rate is faster. And because it is so fast, you cannot see the P waves. The QRSs are so close together, the P waves are getting lost in um, prior, more, you know, EKG tracings, like maybe they're lost in the T wave. You just can't see them. Everything's just so close together. But you can tell it's sinus because the QRS is narrow. So you know it's originating up top. Once the message gets to the ventricles, everything runs fine. So your QRS is normal. Because you can't see a P wave, you don't know where in the atria the rhythm is originating. So all you know is it's above the ventricle. Supraventricular means above the ventricle. So this is just a tachycardia that occurs above the ventricle. It is going to, again, be very fast, 150, 180, 220, really fast. So why are we concerned about this? People, you know, you're working out, your heart rate might get up to 180, you're not in any danger, but someone in the hospital who's chugging along at 180 for a while, that's really dangerous. Why? Well, first of all, filling times in the ventricle are going to be vastly reduced. So again, their cardiac output will be decreased, their blood pressure will drop. You're also going to have way increased myocardial oxygen demands and when the heart gets ischemic it gets unhappy and bad things happen so you definitely want to control your SVT and how you do that depends on if the patient's stable or if they're unstable and how do you tell if they're stable their blood pressure is okay they don't feel dizzy they don't feel short of breath they don't feel out of the ordinary in any way if they are unstable, maybe their mentation is decreased, their blood pressure drops, they have chest pain. If they're unstable, you're going to treat more aggressively. So the first thing I would do if I had someone go into SVT is I'd put a little oxygen on them, give their heart a little extra help as it works so hard with this really fast rhythm. Um, you can Synchronized cardiovert, SVT, happens all the time. You would do this if someone is unstable because you want to get the heart back into a normal rhythm as quickly as possible. You could also give them adenosine. You might try adenosine first. It just depends on how unstable they are. Adenosine is that medication that's going to reset the sinus node. It will show asystole on the monitor for about seven seconds, really, really long seven seconds. And then when it kicks back in, it will be hopefully normal sinus rhythm. But you can give amiodarone twice. Not amiodarone, sorry, adenosine twice. You can try it twice and, and see if that works. I have, I think I've, I've only personally given it once in six-ish years, and I, I had floated a telly that day, and floating out of the unit is always disorienting, 
and you know suddenly you're taking care of four patients who are only on telemonitoring and not every monitoring device known to man which for an ICU nurse it's really weird to take care of patients that are not on you know pulse ox blood pressure telemonitoring um, you know everything all at once so I had a patient who was in SVT and symptomatic you know not feeling good having chest pain etc cetera, etc cetera. so we get we did adenosine I called my friend who was a rapid response nurse that day uh, from the ICU to come do it with me because you need extra hands on deck if something should go wrong or whatnot. So we got the crash cart in the room, not because we thought the patient would crash, but because we needed to have him hooked up to the um, the monitor on the crash cart because it prints a continuous strip. And we wanted to be able to document and record that asystole on the adenosine. So poor guy, he was so scared and so nervous. And I learned that the name of the game with giving adenosine, if your patient is awake and conscious, is to just stay really calm. Um, their heart is racing. They're already super anxious because they can feel that pounding in their chest. And then suddenly they're going to have their heart stopped for seven seconds. What? So just staying super calm really is contagious for your patient. And turn the monitor so that the patient can't see it. That's a little tip for you but so that you can see it because if they see that flat line, they are going to freak out. So anyway, little tip for giving adenosine. And I believe it worked the second dose we gave. I believe it did work and he was fine. So anyway, um, you're going to give adenosine for SVT or synchronized cardiovert, which is where you sync the electricity to the exact right place so that you don't cause what's called R on T phenomenon, and I'm not going to go into all of that, but just know if you hear R on T, it, may, it can induce V-fib, ventricular fibrillation, and that would be very bad. So you synchronize cardiovert when you have a rhythm that you're shocking. Okay, so what can cause SVT? A big one is stimulants. You know, again, anything that stimulates cocaine, caffeine, Probably also nicotine. I'm going to throw that in there as well. Uh, big ones, uh, hyperthyroid. Someone in hyperthyroid storm could be an SVT. Uh, high fevers. Very dehydrated. You could have hypoxia, ischemia, causing SVT, and uh, conduction deficits. So if you go into the room and your patient's in SVT and they feel okay, you could try a vagal maneuver. It might work. I've never seen it work but it might work. Um, I've also, for those stable patients that are having it and they're not really compromised and you're not gonna give adenosine or cardiovert, you can give a calcium channel blocker, like Cardizem or a beta blocker. And again, put some O's on everybody. Just give their heart a little extra help. Okay, so those are the main atrial dysrhythmias. And now let's move on to talking about some uh, ventricular dysrhythmias. So the first one to talk about would just be PVCs. Super simple, premature ventricular uh, contractions. So these are going to look a little bit more obvious than your PACs. 
because they're, you know, they're just bigger, they're wider. The QRS is a, a bigger wave uh, when it's, it just looks bigger when it's wider. So you'll see a PVC on the monitor. And basically what you wanna do is just look at how often are they happening and are they perfusing. So you can palpate a pulse and watch the monitor and see what the monitor rate is. You know, if the monitor rate says 82, but as you physically count the pulse, it's 62, then you know the monitor's picking up those beats just because the monitor reads electricity. But as you palpate, you're only getting 62. You know that those PVCs are not perfusing. They're not creating blood pressure. So that would definitely be an issue if, say, your monitor read 62, but they weren't perfusing beats and they were happening frequently and you go and take a pulse and it's, you know, 40, then we have an issue. For the most part, they do perfuse, they do create blood pressure, and we're just going to keep an eye on them until they become very frequent until they are multifocal, meaning you've got PVCs that look different from one another, meaning that they're coming from different places in the ventricle, which means you've got you know more conduction deficits. And if your patient is symptomatic, again, chest pain, decrease in LOC, dropping O2 sats, dropping blood pressure, anything like that is going to be an issue. So <clears throat> let's just look at one of the main things that can cause PVCs is going to be your uh, electrolyte deficiencies. So if they're having frequent PVCs, the very first thing that you're going to do um, to try to figure out why is probably check a K level and a mag level. You know, run a 12 lead so you can really get a look at them, see if they have um, varied morphology, meaning are they shaped differently, and get a really good look at how often are they happening. If they are occurring in a row, that's worse than if they're occurring every few beats, okay? So the treatment for PVCs, you know, correct electrolyte deficiencies. You, may, you might give uh, amiodarone if they're really frequent and um, you know, keep an eye on them, definitely. For the most part, what I've seen is as we correct potassium, magnesium imbalances, the PVCs generally resolve themselves. Okay, so that's PVCs. Um, let's talk a little bit about, um, well, there's a few other few other things that can cause PVCs besides KMEG, so I didn't mean to just um, gloss over that. You, you know, hypoxia can cause it. Um, any kind of stress on the heart, you'll notice that stress on the heart is a common cause for many of these. You know, MI, ischemia, heart failure, um, being in a acidotic state can cause PVCs. Even digoxin toxicity can cause it. Um, pay attention if your patient has a central line and maybe if they turn on their side, you see PVCs on the monitor, and then when they roll back onto their back, they go away. Check that x-ray and see if the central line is maybe a little deep. If it's a little deep, and it's you know way, not just right above the atria, but actually in the ventricle, 
it can make the ventricle irritable and you will get PVCs. So um, there you go. Also, I mean, calcium is another electrolyte, but for the most part, K and mag are the big ones. Okay, how about VTAC, ventricular tachycardia? So somewhat common to have runs of VTAC. These are, you know, maybe four, six, eight, ten ventricular beats in a row, and then the heart goes back to doing um, its regular sinus rhythm. If your patient's in sustained VTAC, that's a code situation, okay? You're going to follow your ACLS protocol on that. But if you're just having runs of VTAC, you are, again, going to check K and MAG levels. Um, make sure that they are having a blood pressure while they have these runs of VTAC. Notice if their blood pressure drops. Harder to check when you're on, um, you know, a, a cuff pressure because by the time you take the cuff pressure, the VTAC has probably ended. But if they have an art line and you can watch blood pressure in real time, you can see if they're dropping their blood pressure with those. So correcting electrolytes is big with uh, VTAC. You know, get them some oxygen. Um, if it's sustained, amiodarone is probably the way that they're going to go. Um, and then if it's a code situation where it's <clears throat> the patient is unstable, then they are going to get cardioverted. And uh, you know what? I want to take something back from before. I said you could give adenosine twice. You can give it three times. Um, I apologize for that. I just noticed that I said that. So you can give adenosine the first dose of six twice. So six milligrams, six milligrams. And if that doesn't work, then you give a 12 milligram dose. So sorry for the backtrack on that. So VTAC, again, you're going to see if it's uh, runs of VTAC and how many beats. And are they perfusing correct electrolytes and possibly have to give amiodarone or cardiovert? Okay, so that was VTAC. How about, let's look at torsades de Poins. This is a really interesting rhythm and I've only seen it maybe once. And I don't even think I saw it while it was happening. I just saw someone had printed out a strip to say, hey, cool, look at this, because it is kind of, well, it's not cool for the patient, but it is a really interesting looking um, ventricular rhythm. And so what this is, it's a very particular type of polymorphic VTAC that occurs when your QT is prolonged. That's why if you haven't read my post, I think it's titled, Why the QT Interval Matters. You wanna read that. Um, so you can go back and look over that if you're interested. So basically your curious impulses in torsades de Poins revolve around the isoelectric line, creating this distinctive EKG tracing that looks very distinctive. It looks like wider and more narrow and then wider and more narrow. And when I say wider and more narrow, I mean like vertically, like taller, shorter, taller, shorter, taller, shorter um, VTAC, polymorphic VTAC. So they're all different shapes. And basically 
Torsades de Poince translates to turning on the point. It's that turning around the isoelectric line that gives it its name. And it's more or less got a pretty simple treatment. Usually it's magnesium deficiency that causes, well, not, not that causes it, but that treats it. Um, you would want to stop any drugs that prolong the QT interval. Correct all electrolytes, not just mag, but mag is definitely going to be the first one that you're going to correct or treat. Um, mag inhibits calcium, which inhibits that early uh, depolarization that precipitates torsades if you want to get into the pathophysiology of that. So give mag, correct any electrolyte imbalances. They may need to be defibrillated and note that torsades can very easily um, deteriorate into a uh, VFib. So you want to definitely jump on that if you see it. And then there are the uh, idioventricular rhythms. So what are these? These are, you know, you have those pacemaker sites in the heart, right? If they fail, then you're going to get what's called an idioventricular rhythm. And that rate is like 20 to 40 beats per minute, which is not good. Okay, cardiac output is going to be really low with a heart rate of 20 to 40. Um, usually, idioventricular is a sign of the heart dying. When we have patients on comfort care and we're allowing natural death, you'll see oftentimes, rather than them just going straight into asystole, a lot of times you'll see the QRS widening, 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 and they'll end up in an idioventricular rhythm before it just widens progressively until it gets to asystole. But if you have a patient and you don't want them, you know, to be in an idioventricular rhythm or it's unexpected for them, then you need to do something about it. And basically, you're going to give CPR. You're going to increase perfusion by getting on that chest. Um, they might get a pacemaker placed. Um, you can give drugs to uh, bump up the heart rate, like epinephrine, atropine, and maybe dopamine. So again, following your hospital, your facilities policies, um, if there's a physician there, you'd follow what they have to say. But idioventricular, when it's too slow to produce a perfusing heart rate with a good cardiac output and blood pressure, you need to get on there and pump the chest for them. Note that idioventriculars can be accelerated. They can be faster than that 20 to 40. And in this case, the rate would be 40 to 100. And um, when the rate is faster like this, the patients tolerate it better. You can see it after an MI. Um, as the heart is reperfused, they can go into this accelerated idioventricular rhythm. And in that case, you're just going to kind of keep an eye on it. It can also be caused by drug toxicity, ischemia, always ischemia, right? Um, and just structural problems with the heart. So, you know, you may need to give atropine to get the rate up and give them some O2. Let the doc know what's going on, of course, and see if there are further steps that need to be taken. Okay, so we've done itiventricular, we did VTAC, we did torsades. Okay, so let's go into some of the, the pulseless rhythms. So you can have a great looking EKG 
on the monitor that is not producing a pulse. And that would be PEA, pulseless electrical activity. And this is, of all the rhythms, I think this is the one that scares me the most because it can look completely normal. So your heart, if you got your patient on a heart monitor, the heart monitor isn't going to alarm at you because it sees a normal rhythm. What you will see, and this is why I love working ICU where people are on multiple types of monitoring devices, you will see a drop in their oxygen saturation and their blood pressure. So PEA looks normal, but it's not. It's not producing any kind of mechanical pumping action, okay? So if you're at the nurse's station and you've got a patient, let's just say you've got everything, you've got an SpO2 pulse ox and you've got an art line and you look up and your art line pressure is 50 or 40 and your O2 sat is 50 or 40, but your heart rate and EKG look fabulous, you need to be highly suspicious that your patient just went into PEA and you're going to run into the room and do a code. So um, basically, the ACLS algorithm for PEA is the same as for asystole. First thing you want to do, um, holler for help as you're running and start compressions. Okay, get the crash card in there so that you can give all your ACLS drugs and get them on the monitor and all of that. So PEA, to me, one of the scariest rhythms out there because it can look so benign and you might not catch it as fast as you would, say, asystole or VFib or VTAC. <clears throat> okay, so that was PEA. Speaking of VFib and VTAC, they are also pulseless rhythms. So let's talk about pulseless VTAC first. Um, this is a VTAC that looks just like regular old VTAC on the monitor, but like PEA, it is not perfusing. So your patient's in VTAC, you're going to hightail it into the room, check for pulse. Look at the patient. Don't look at the monitor. The monitor is going to tell you that they're in VTAC. You already know that. Um, you can, you know, assess their O2 sat if they've got that on, art line blood pressure if they've got that on, obviously. But look at your patient. Check for a pulse. You're not going to find it if they're in pulseless VTAC. Hit the code button. Holler for help. Start CPR. And again, you're just going to follow your ACLS algorithm for that. Um, if they're on a ventilator and you are doing CPR on a patient, you will take them off the vent and manually bag the patient. That is because as you are doing chest compressions, you are drastically increasing um, pressure in the thoracic cavity, and your vent is set with pressure limits. So what's going to happen is as you're doing chest compressions, the vent's going to think that uh, intrathoracic pressures are really high, lung pressures are too high, and it's not going to deliver a breath. So you need to take them off the vent and bag them manually, okay? Um, V-fib, another pulseless state, very bad. V-fib, really easy to spot. 
um, and it's, it's usually a sign of, of, of very bad things. So I remember I've only had one patient of mine go into VFib as I was taking care of them. Thank goodness I was not alone in the room. For some reason, there were two other nurses in the room helping me with something. I think I was having trouble with his pick line. I can't remember, but there was an issue. I remember his arms were really swollen, and we might have just been trying to get the swelling down by propping his arms up on these um, big wedges. It was something like that. I remember being kind of at the foot of the bed, and there were two nurses up at the towards the top of the bed messing with this pick line or getting his arms elevated or something. And in hindsight, looking back, I think they were hovering and helping me because I was a pretty new nurse at the time and I had a really sick patient and I have great coworkers and they're never going to leave anybody stranded and they probably just knew that I need a little extra love which was great because at that moment the patient kind of woke up a little bit he was you know sedated just had come from a big 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 surgery uh, woke up a little bit dropped his o2 sat he was it just everything kind of happened all at once woke up a little bit i wouldn't say woke up moved around a little bit and then vfib on the monitor instantly so um instantly started pulling stuff off the bed uh, somebody hit the code button it wasn't me and they started compressions immediately which was awesome they were right there um and then the doc came in immediately because he had been close. And when he heard that code called overhead, he knew it was his patient. So got in the room, and we, I worked my tail off all night long on that guy. Um, I stayed until like 10 a.m. the next morning um, just catching up on paperwork. But anyway, so VFib, very bad. That's the moral of the story. So in VFib, the ventricles are quivering and not contracting, not producing a blood pressure or pulse. So getting right on the CPR, getting your crash cart in the room, getting your ACLS drugs on board, um, and hopefully getting back into sinus rhythm with the pulse and neurologically intact. Okay, so those are the main ones. Assistily, obviously, the classic flat line. Um, if you're watching a show like one of those medical TV shows, asystole, they always shock the patient. That's so wrong, and I wish people would stop doing that because then the public, when the family's in the room and they're in asystole and you're not shocking the patient, they're probably wondering, why aren't they, where's the, the pads? Um, but that's not how you treat asystole because there's nothing to shock. There's no rhythm. So basically, this is compressions, 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 and epinephrine. And if you're listening to this and ACLS has changed by the time you listen to this, obviously, you're going to follow current guidelines. So asystole, flatline, super easy to see. Hit the code button, get on the chest. Your team will be there soon, I promise. So let's talk a little bit about heart blocks. I have a whole post about heart blocks. Um, I think it's called Heart Blocks, A Relationship in Trouble. Um, 
and you can check that out. But I'll just go over the down and dirty of them real quick so, so that you can at least get a little bit of a refresher or maybe you've already listened to that one and this is just review for you. But for heart blocks, there's a few different kinds. First degree heart block is the one that you're gonna see the most often. And in this one, your PR interval is just long, longer than normal. You'll have a regular rhythm. You know, it can be fast, it can be slow, it can be normal, but the PRI is a little bit longer than normal. So you wanna make sure that all the impulses are getting through. If they're not, then you are, you're getting to a higher degree of block, okay? Higher degree, like second degree, third degree. So first degree heart block, you want to monitor the PRI, see if it starts to get longer. Take a note of what drugs the patient is on. Um, first degree heart block is often caused by drugs that affect the AV node. So uh, like beta blockers, something like that. Um, they could be having an inferior MI. So if it's a brand new, like, oh, look, chosen first degree all of a sudden, then you're probably going to be grabbing a 12 lead and taking a closer look at what's going on with his heart. Um, can also occur in patients with, you know, coronary artery disease or rheumatic heart disease. So basically with first degree, keep an eye on the PRI, see if it gets longer and longer and longer. If it does, you want to obviously, you're going to let somebody know, especially if this is new, but take a look at the drugs that the patient is getting and what could be causing that first degree. Is this new for them? Things like that. For the most part, um, if they are really symptomatic, um, they could be getting a pacemaker if they're at high risk for progressing to a more dangerous heart block. So then you have the high, next highest degree of block is second degree heart block type one. And I really wish that whoever named these had named them first degree, second degree, third degree, fourth degree. That would be so much easier to remember because this is where I always, and still after all these years, I still get confused about second degree type one, second degree type two, and I have to stop, pause, think about it. But second degree type one um, also goes by Winkybach or Mobitz 1. So there's three names for one type of heart block. Second degree type 1, Winkybach, Mobitz 1. I know, it's just whatever. It is what it is. We just have to deal with it. Um, caused basically by the same things that cause a first degree block. Um, it could also be caused by mitral valve prolapse. And what you will see in second degree heart block type 1, a.k.a. Winkybach, AKA Mobitz one is this gradual lengthening of the PR interval. It'll be, you know, maybe normal, slightly longer, slightly longer, slightly longer, and then a dropped QRS. And then the cycle will repeat like clockwork. So you'll see the PRI get progressively longer with each beat and then drops a beat. So your ventricular rate and your atrial rate will be different. And you just wanna make sure that that dropped beat doesn't cause uh, hemodynamic compromise. So if their rate is too low and they're symptomatic, you can give atropine. For the most part, 
Second degree type one is kind of a transient rhythm and they'll come out of it. You want to obviously take a look at any, uh, any medications that would slow conduction through the AV node. Um, you know, if there are maybe calcium channel blockers and DIG can make this a little bit worse. So just keeping an eye if the bradycardia makes them symptomatic or if they are in a bradycardia because of it, you want to treat that, you know, give them a little oxygen if they're having any kind of issues. Um, if they're really sick, you can pace them to get the rate up, give atropine, etc. Um, maybe they'll get a permanent pacemaker if this is something that they're in all the time. The next highest degree of block is second degree heart block two. This is also known by an extra name, which is Mobitz II. So as we go up in the degrees of heart block, they do get more serious. Um, in this one, you do have drop ventricular beats, just like in second degree heart block type one, also known as Winkybach or Mobitz one. But in second degree heart block type two, also known as Mobitz 2, you'll have ventricular beats that are dropped, but it's random. There's no rhyme or reason to it. In, you know, second degree one, it was every fourth or fifth beat, maybe. In this one, it's random. It's here, there, harder to see because of that. Your P waves are going to be jamming along just fine, so your atrial rate is regular. But some QRSs here and there, totally randomly, are going to be dropped. So your ventricular rate will be irregular. Second degree heart block type 2, also known as what? Mobitz 2. Very good. This one can be dangerous. This one can progress to third degree heart block pretty easily. It can also uh, cause very symptomatic bradycardia. So... Your AV node in this rhythm, second degree heart block type 2, also known as Mobitz 2, is pretty sick. So, you know, you've got causes like ischemia, um, digitalis toxicity, um, could be beta blocking meds that are causing it, things like that. So you give atropine for the bradycardia, you can pace them. And if they're hypotensive, maybe some dopamine. So um, it's not a watch and wait kind of scenario. You want to let somebody know ASAP, 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 that your patient is in Mobitz 2. Get them on some O's. Um, make sure that I would put the pacing pads on the patient and have it ready to go just in case. And um, be ready with things like atropine if you're going to need them. And then the most dangerous heart block is third degree heart block. This one's just called, well, actually it does go by another name. You might hear it called complete heart block, but that's a lot easier than the other ones. And this one's really bad, very bad. Um, this can cause um, your patient to deteriorate very, very quickly. Um, you're going to have it occur most likely in the cases of things like NMI, a conduction system uh, disorder. It can happen after heart surgery, open heart surgery, um, again, digitoxicity, and AV no blocking meds. So in this, 
in this third degree heart block, the atria is doing its thing, the ventricles are doing their thing, and they're not communicating. They are, atria is contracting over here, regular as all get out, and the ventricles are contracting over here, also regular as all get out, but they're not talking to each other. Um, and the ventricular rate could be very slow with this. So most likely in third degree heart block, your patient's gonna have a bradycardia and be symptomatic. Um, if they're not right now, they might get there. I'd be highly suspicious that they would get there. I would put the pacing pads on them right away, have them ready to go. They are at risk for sudden cardiac death. And if that doesn't make you nervous, then nothing will. Um, you wanna definitely stop any AV blocking meds, call the doc, make sure there's a cardiologist that is coming to see the patient and someone in third degree block probably gonna need a permanent pacemaker. So for that patient, you will be super vigilant and ready for a code to be called. Um, so have the, have the crash card handy. Actually, it's gonna be right there because you're gonna have the pacing pads on them and you're gonna be ready for anything. So I believe we've covered the main dysrhythmias I hope that was super helpful for you guys. Um, again, if you want to read a little bit more about it, there's a post on the website, straightanursingstudent.com, called Arrhythmias Don't Stand a Chance. The other one is titled Heart Blocks, A Relationship in Trouble. And was there one more that I referenced? Oh, if I did, I hope you wrote it down because now I can't remember what it was. But... Um, Check those out, and maybe we'll do a pod quiz on all the arrhythmias. I think that would be super helpful. I would have found it super helpful, and I'm sure I probably made myself flashcards on all of this stuff and audio flashcards as well back when I was a student. So anyway, if you have not visited the website and you just found this on uh, this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, then you can check out a ton more goodies for nursing students, new nurses, etc. at straightanursingstudent.com. We are not just students when we are in school. We are students for all of our careers. You are, um, if you're a student though, and you are having trouble or just starting and really nervous about school, you can check out my book, Nursing School Thrive Guide, available on Amazon as an audiobook, a Kindle book, and an actual hold-in-your-hands paperback book. And if you like this podcast, please rate and review on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. That really helps us show up in the search results when other students are just randomly searching for things like nursing school or nursing. It'll help them, and helping each other is what nurses do. So thank you all very much. I hope you have a great day, and tune in next week for another episode of the Straight A Nursing Podcast. podcast is a production of straightanursingstudent.com, copyright Mo Media.